this series of messages from the Gospel of Luke. And as we were singing, and I appreciate Pastor Mark and Sister Amy and Sister Leanna leading us and singing that uh, old hymn, Tell Me the Story of Jesus. I remember singing that in the little country church where I grew up, and, and I still love to hear that. And that's basically what I am doing or attempting to do with the help of God's Holy Spirit and certainly the guidance of His Word is I want to retell that glorious and, and ageless, wonderful story of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The Gospel, it means good news. And in the story of Jesus, it's all about good news to those of us who were lost in sin and walking in the darkness of rebellion against God. And so I, I pray that as we go through this series that I've entitled Follow Me, because that is the primary calling upon every Christian's life. That's, that is our, our number one priority in living on this earth. Not to get rich, not to be popular, not to accumulate a lot of things. It's not to get a name for ourselves. We are here by the grace of God to follow Jesus Christ by faith. And in doing so, to bring glory to God through the way that we follow Christ and live our lives. And so as we look at chapter 9 in the Gospel of Luke, we'll be continuing this story that we've begun uh, a couple Sundays ago in chapter 9. In fact, I, I will just point out to you, if you were one of those people that have a hard copy Bible and you've got more than one ribbon, uh, you may want to examine because I'll be looking at some of the parallel passages from the parallel Gospels of Matthew and Mark that tell different perspectives of the same portion of the story. And it helps to kind of fill in the blanks and just and actually make, make it even more fulfilling. So if you're doing that, you may want to mark your place at Matthew chapter 17 and you'll see similar uh, accounts there in Matthew 17 verses 14 through 23 and then also in Matthew 18 verses 1 through 5. Then in the Gospel of Mark, you'll find the parallel version in chapter 9 of Mark, Mark 9, verses 14 through 41. And we'll be maybe making references to those two parallel versions of this glorious story of Christ. You know, uh, several days ago, I was making my rounds to the hospitals. And uh, on this particular day, I had a pretty tight schedule. And so I was trying to keep things moving along so that I could meet my obligations at, for meetings and things like that for the day. And I pulled into the parking lot at Baptist Hospital, which is always an adventure in and of itself. And I could tell from the moment that I pulled through the gates that lifted up that this was going to be a challenge because there were cars backed up almost to the gate, which tells me this parking lot is about full. And so here I am watching my watch and, you know, the time is ticking and I'm following very slow people who have a difficult time navigating through that maze we call a parking deck. And so finally, after driving around and around and around, I found the space, finally. And so I quick pulled my car into that parking space and, you know, I walked fast. Jan's always after me because I always walk ahead of her. But so I, I was walking through the parking deck had a good clip. I was like clippity-clop, clippity-clop, you know, not actually, but at, in my mind. And, and so making my way as fast as I could to get to the entrance of the hospital. 
And as I was approaching the stairwell, that, 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 that there's several steps that lead down to the main entrance from the parking deck, lo and behold, there was a lady, and she was walking down the steps, and right beside of her was a little girl. And that girl was probably this, probably about 10, 11 years old. And, 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 and here I am, I'm going 90 miles an hour walking, and then all of a sudden, they're going two miles an hour going down the steps. And, you know, and I'm you know, trying to be Christian about this thing, you know. <laughs> I didn't push anybody. And, um, and so, you know, I, but I'll have to confess, I was perturbed. Because I really wanted to get past them, and there was no room, and so I'm, you know, one step, then two step, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, and so finally, you know, finally, as they got to the last step and stepped off, I found a space that I could scoot past them, and so like Speedy Gonzalez, I wheeled past them, but then out of the corner of my eye, I looked to my right, and I couldn't help but notice this little girl had an obviously uh, crippled foot. Her foot was almost perpendicular to her leg or right angle. And I all of a sudden saw, I saw it right there unfold before me. Here was this loving mother who was very carefully and very cautiously, and all I had, very patiently, and lovingly, she wasn't trying to hurry her, even with the speed demons like me behind them. She wasn't trying to coax her to hurry up or she wasn't scolding her because she was so slow. But she was so gentle and caring. I was under great conviction. If I weren't in a hurry, I would stop. <laughs> but I, I did. I was convicted in my heart when I saw the love and patience of this mother and you know, that didn't leave my mind, even though I went on with my activities that day. But I, as I was preparing this message and thinking about our Savior, thinking about our dear Lord, and I think about how He so patiently and so lovingly walks alongside of us every day in our lives as His blessed children. And I think about how He is so patient with us because you see, I, like yourself, we, we walk with the crippling effect of sin, the curse of sin every day. There's not a one of us that is not hindered by and, and, and slowed down by and distracted by sin. And yet I think about our Savior, our precious Lord, and how loving and patient He is to walk alongside of us so much like that mother. As we look at Luke's Gospel chapter 9, I'll remind you a couple of Sundays ago I brought the message of, of, of Jesus and His three disciples. He selected to go with Him up to the top of a high mountain. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration. There, Peter, James, and John, unlike any other human on the face of the earth, witnessed not only Jesus' communion with two of the great giants of faith from the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, there who appeared on that mountaintop and were talking with Jesus about His impending date with destiny and death on the cross in Jerusalem. But there the Bible tells us that the glory of Christ 
shone through his, his physical being. They were able to witness in those few moments on the top of that mountain the very glory of the kingdom of God that you and I will bask in one day through all of eternity. And so now in Luke's Gospel chapter 9, picking up in verse 37, they're coming down from the mountain and oftentimes we have mountaintop experiences as Christians in our lives and, uh, and sooner or later we have to come down off of the mountain, don't we? Whether that be a wonderful, glorious worship experience or a powerful Bible study or maybe God working in a miraculous way and we're up on the top of the spiritual mountain, sooner or later we come down. And so I want you to see a couple of things about our wonderful Lord and I do pray as we tell the story of Jesus, maybe there's someone here today that has never walked through a gospel, one of the gospel, and, and had the story unfold for you. Or maybe you've, you've read through the gospel before, but I promise you with an open heart and an open mind, the Lord will say something to you. He'll reveal something to you that is new and different about this precious Son of God, our Savior, our Lord, that will endear you to Him even more. That's the purpose of this series. So as we begin there in verse 37, the first thing I want you to see is our Lord patiently enhances our faulty faith. Our Lord patiently enhances our faulty faith. Look in verse 37. Now it happened on the next day. When they had come down from the mountain, that would be Jesus, Peter, James, and John, that a great multitude met him. And I'll stop there because in Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, it says that when Jesus got down there with Peter, James, and John, they found the other disciples embroiled in an argument with some scribes. So that's going on. Suddenly, verse 8, 38, verse 38, suddenly a man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. Do you remember how we saw Luke puts emphasis on only children? Remember when Jesus and the multitude went into the town of, of Nain, a small town there in Galilee, and there was a procession coming out, a funeral procession, and how they were carrying the body of a, of a, a young man. And Luke made sure that we understood that not only was this the widow's son, but this was her only son. Do you remember uh, uh, in, in chapter 8 when Jesus encountered Jairus, the, the leader of the synagogue, and, and there we're told that this daughter of Jairus's that was sick to, nearly to death, that that was his only child. And I think it's interesting that here a man approaches Jesus out of the multitude and he implores the Lord to look on his son for he is my only child. The desperateness of the situation is enhanced by the fact that it's just not just one of the children, but the only child, my only son. And we think about God giving his only begotten son on that cross. This is almost like a, a foreshadowing of what God was going to do when he sent his own son to the cross to die for you and me. Look in verse 39. And behold, a spirit seized him. Talking about a de demonic spirit seizing the boy. And he suddenly cries out, 
It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and bruises him. It departs from him with great difficulty. So I implored your disciples to cast it out. But they could not. Then Jesus answered and said, O oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and, and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child and gave him back to the Father. You know, Jesus' apostles had experienced two mountaintop experiences, if you will, spiritually speaking. If you look back in chapter in this same chapter in verse 1, we remember that Jesus had dispatched his disciples to go out and, and, and he gave them power over the authority of demons, all demons, it says in verse 1. And then he also gave them power to heal diseases. And they went. And in verse 6, it tells us that they, they came back and, and, and they had gone out and they had fulfilled this mission. So they're all, all the disciples have had this mountaintop experience of being in the power of God and casting out demons and healing the sick. And then as we saw last time in verse 28 on, Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John on top of this high mountain where they had experienced the glory of Christ and the presence of, of Moses and Elijah. These were so the disciples are coming right off of a mountaintop experience of, of being lifted up and, and, and having experienced the power of Christ surging through them. And now all of a sudden, we're told they're not able to cast this demon out. And so as we look at what Jesus is dealing with here, we first see that he is addressing the glaring deficiencies of faith that exist around him. And, and, and what, how disheartening this must have been for the Lord. That's why in verse 41, his response when he, he heard this about his disciples and, 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 and their lack of faith, he says, oh, faithless and perverse generations. But he's not speaking just to the disciples. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 5 and verse 20, that's the exact same reference that God used when speaking through Moses to the Israelites. When God had done so much for them and, and He had provided so much for them and blessed them in such a wonderful way and yet they turned their backs on God and turned to, to idolatry in, in divine frustration, God says you are a perverse and faithless generation. And that's the words that Christ used here as He speaks not only to His disciples, but He speaks to all the people. How frustrating! Jesus has, has manifested His power in miracles. He's demonstrated His authority and, and powerful divine teachings such that people were amazed, and yet still people don't believe, including His own disciples have a faith failure. We see Jesus is willing as he addresses this glaring deficiency of faith around him, he assists the unbelief of his own disciples. We see that clearer in Matthew's gospel. If you'll turn there, Matthew chapter 17. Because Luke doesn't, doesn't mention this, that that's just his perspective. But in Luke's gospel, chapter 17, in verse 19, I thought it was worth noting how Luke picks up on this. 
In verse, 17, in verse 19 of Luke, uh, Matthew 17, verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast him out? Speaking of the, the demon. So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. And it's not to say that they didn't have faith, but they were saying you were, you were experiencing a faith failure. Your, your faith was not strong enough because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So Jesus is saying, you have faith, but it's the quality of your faith. It's the strength of your faith that, in, that, that has paralyzed you and made it such that you can't. So he's helping them to understand. You've got to have strong faith. But then also, look at verse 21 there in Matthew 17. He goes on and also gives them another. Clue. It says, however, this kind, and he's speaking of this particular demon, because as you think about in the, in the scriptures, there are references to where demons, different demons have different levels of power. I think about in the book of Daniel, when Daniel was praying and God sent uh, an angel to come to bring the message to Daniel. You may recall that that particular angel was, was hindered in getting to Daniel because he encountered a more powerful fallen angel, demon, the, the, the demon of Persia that interfered with his coming to Daniel. And so God had to dispatch a stronger angel, Michael, to come and take care of this stronger demon. So Jesus is saying, first of all, your faith needs to be strong and concentrated. Even, even if it's small, it's okay. If it's strong faith, he says, there's nothing impossible for you if you're seeking to do the will of God. But then in verse 21, he says, however, this kind, speaking of this particular demon, does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So you see, Jesus is not just casting them aside. He's not rebuking them and embarrassing them and, and, and basically writing them off. He's, he's assisting them to say, okay, if you really want to be effective in doing my work, number one, you've got to exercise strong faith and develop that. And then also, you've got to be ready and sensitive and discerning so that when you encounter a spiritual foe, you are wise to pray and fast. You know, it's interesting, going back to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, we see a faith failure again with the disciples. I'm sure Jesus was like, oh, yeah, yeah. In verse 43, and they were all amazed at the majesty of God but while everyone marveled at all the things that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears. Now, I know parents, sometimes when we try to really stress things we want our kids to take to heart, we'll try to get them to look at us. Get, get, uh, look at me, make eye contact. Are you listening? You know, now what I'm going to say is important. Okay, I want you to repeat it. All right, and so you, you do those type, type of, you take those kind of measures to make sure that they understand that what you're saying is, is vitally important. And Jesus is saying, let these words sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. And it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. This is not the first time that Jesus has revealed this, this uh, prophecy to them. 
This is not the first time he's mentioned that. In fact, in this same chapter, chapter 9, going back to verse 21, we tell that we're told right there. He strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one. Look at verse 22, Luke's Gospel, chapter, 20, chapter 9, verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. This is not the first time they've heard this. Maybe the first time Jesus would have said, I've told them and they didn't get it, so forget it. But patiently and lovingly, our Lord is assisting them with their unbelief. And He's lovingly helping them to understand. And He'll continue to tell them this. So that when that moment occurs, they'll be prepared. Of course, we know they still deserted Him at that very crucial moment. But also as we see that as Jesus is, is addressing the glaring deficiencies of faith around Him, Let's go back to the father. Let's go back to that father who was so deeply disturbed by what was going on with his son. Holding your place there in Luke chapter 9, if you just go back to Mark chapter 9, Mark expands upon the, the exchange between Jesus and this father. And, and if you miss this, you miss the essence of the agony of this father and his struggle of faith. And so in Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 20, says, Then they brought him to him, the boy to, to Jesus. And he, when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. That's, that's a horrific image to have in your mind for those of you who are parents or grandparents to think your child is being so absolutely dominated and controlled and manipulated by a, a vicious, evil spirit. Verse 21, So Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Now look at the plea of the father. But if, and that tells you something right there, he believes, but then again, he doesn't believe enough. I don't know if you ever pray prayers of if. Lord, if you can. Or Lord, if you will. <laughs> you know? But he says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. You see how the Father is into the struggle? He's not asking Jesus to intervene for just his son. He's saying, this is killing me. Help us. And Jesus said to him, I think it's so important. You don't miss this because Jesus is assisting this man as well. Patiently. He's not criticizing him and ridiculing him because he doesn't have faith strong enough to believe that Jesus can heal. He's, he's reminding him. Then verse 23, Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. In other words, the Lord Jesus was telling this desperate, agonizing father who loved his son with all of his being. He was basically saying, your faith, your faith can heal your son. If you believe. When Jesus saw 
Well, let me go back to verse 24 there in Mark 9. Immediately, the, as soon as Jesus said that, as, Jesus, as soon as Jesus says all things are possible to him who believes, verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out saying with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I want you to see something there while you're in Mark's Gospel chapter 9. Looking at verse 24, but also glancing over to verse 7. I'm, I'm sorry, verse 17. Verse 17. Then one from the multitude, this is the same father, answered and said, Teacher, I brought my son who has a mute spirit. Folks, so it's very minor details, but it's a powerful lesson. From verse 17 to verse 24, with the assistance of Jesus, this man has been anointed with faith. His faith has grown exponentially so that suddenly the one that he was saying, teacher, rabbi, is now Lord. Because he realizes this is not an ordinary rabbi. This is not an ordinary teacher. A teacher can't heal my son. A rabbi can't deliver my son. And so he cries out to Jesus, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And we witness a miracle of Jesus helping with this man's deficient faith taking place right there. Not only does the Lord address the glaring deficiencies of faith, but the Lord faithfully strengthens us when our faith is weak. There's not a moment in, there's not a one of us that doesn't have times in our life that crises and situations, stress and what have you, may cause us to stumble in our faith. And the Lord knows that. I want you to hear, not only is He patient and loving with His disciples to help them through a crisis of, of belief, but dear friend, the same Jesus is with you and He's willing in those times when you struggle with your faith his Holy Spirit, who is the great and wonderful eternal comforter, who is with us on, on Jesus' behalf. He will help us. Paul said in Romans 8, 26, and, and he said the Spirit helps us in our weakness. When we don't know what to pray, the Spirit Himself intercedes with groans that words can't express. The Lord patiently is willing to help us even when we struggle. He will help to strengthen our faith. He's ready to step in. Jesus works in our times of weakness for His glory. That's what He's doing here. As He's encouraging His disciples, as He's encouraging this desperate Father. Listen, when it's all said and done and, and His disciples are stronger in their faith and this man has faith, saving faith now, and faith to believe that Jesus can do anything, that God can do anything. Listen, Jesus... Through, and, and God get the glory. I guess I should say God gets His glory through Jesus through this episode. But not only that, but Jesus also works through our weaknesses for His glory. 
Paul, you may recall in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, tells us how God had given to him a thorn in the flesh to buffet him, to keep him humble. And Paul had prayed three times to the Lord about this thorn in the flesh. Listen to Jesus' response to the apostle Paul at that point. He says that Jesus says to Paul, my grace is su sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. He's saying to Paul, Paul, yes, you're weak right now. But leaning on me and trusting in me, my strength will be made perfect in you. And Paul got it. The lights went on in his mind and he says, you know, well, well praise the Lord. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But he said, most gladly I'll boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Don't be defeated in your times of, of faith failure. Don't let the devil disqualify you and cause you to say, well, I, you know, my faith is weak. It's insufficient. The Lord is done with me. He's disappointed. Oh no, you have a Savior who is with you every day. He understands the struggles you're going through. And our faith is made stronger through these times of trial. James tells us that in James chapter 1, verse Two, he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. This, and listen, when we face trials, when we face these times of difficulty, challenges, listen, it's not a time to throw up our hands and raise a white flag and say, oh well, listen, realize the scripture tells us that those times of trial where your faith is being tested, they're there for a purpose. The Lord is walking right alongside of you and he's saying, keep trusting in me, keep looking to me, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not upon your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him. And He'll make your path straight. Listen, God wants us to have bold faith when we come before Him. I think about in, in Hebrews, in chapter 4, where in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, He says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time, in the time of need. How do we get that kind of boldness? How do we get that kind of confidence to walk into the very throne room of God and to speak in, 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 on terms of a relationship in which you call Him Father? How is it possible that you and I can come right into the throne room of God's marvelous grace and make our petitions as we do when we offer our prayers of supplication? I'll tell you, because our, strength, our faith has been strengthened through our trials. Our Lord patiently enhances our faulty faith, but as we move along with this story, I want you to also see, beginning in, in verse 46 in chapter 9 of Luke, I want you to see also that our Lord patiently exposes our sinful pride. I know pride's a hard thing for us to deal with, but it's a hard thing for His disciples to deal with. And I think it's interesting that we see this story revealed here in verse 46. Look with me, chapter 9 of Luke, verse 46. Then a dispute arose among them, His disciples, 
as to which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thoughts of their hearts, took a little child and set him uh, by him and said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you will be great. Jesus again, patiently working with his disciples, helping them to see the danger of pride. You know, the scripture tells us Old Testament and New Testament about the danger of sinful pride. You may recall in Proverbs 16, verse, 6, uh, verse 18, the, the scripture, Scriptures tell us, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. Better to be a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. We know that this is also picked up also in James, James chapter 4 when he's quoting from Proverbs again. But this is what James says in James chapter 4, verse 6. He says, he, but He gives more grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Quoting from Proverbs 3.34. Now, this issue of pride is beginning to surface. And Jesus, first of all, confronts the depravity of their thinking about one another. The first element of their pride was how they looked at one another. This is not the first time and this is not the last time these disciples would struggle with this. I think it's interesting because when you look in Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 33, again, Mark expands on this a little bit. He says in verse 33 of chapter 9 of the Gospel of Mark, then he came to Capernaum. And that's important because that's where Peter's residence was. That's kind of like his home base. Then he, then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house... Dr. John McCarthy in his commentary suggested that this very well could have been Simon Peter's house. Sometimes they would go there. You remember the time that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, they were there. But anyway, they were in this house and he asked them, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. So you see the context here. They had been walking behind Jesus all the way to Capernaum and they're arguing. Maybe Peter and James and John are saying, you guys are, you know, you're, you're secondary. You know, you're just a second string disciples because, hey, we've been up on the mountain. You know, we saw Jesus and we saw Moses and Elijah. We're the number ones. You know, that kind of thing could have been going on. Maybe the comparisons of, of trade or things like that. Or, or different things that they had done. But anyway, there was this dispute going on. And Jesus had asked them, what is it you're talking about? Did he really need information? I think he was giving them a chance to confess. And, and verse 35, And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Now, later Jesus will say that something similar to this in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20, when he says, those of you, talking to his disciples, if you desire to be great in the kingdom of God, those who desire to be great will be your servant. Those who desire to be first will be your slave. So see, Jesus is already introducing this formula. So he says, whoever wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And then to illustrate that in Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 36, then Jesus says this, then he took a small child, a little child. Now, if this was Peter's house, could have been Peter's son. We don't know. And he set him in the midst of them. 
And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. You see the connection? There's a parallel Jesus is making. First between the child and Jesus, but then also then Jesus and God. Now why was it significant? Why didn't he have a woman come in and sit down next to him? Or, or another man come and sit next to him? You see, children under the age of 12 in this culture were considered to be relatively, if not mostly, insignificant. That's why the disciples in one account in the Gospels got so offended and upset when these women were bringing their children, little children, you know, the toddlers and don't be offended, you know, kids under 12. But, you know, they were bringing their little darlings for Jesus to bless. And the disciples were like, ah, what? what are you bringing these rag dolls for? They don't count. They don't matter. They're insignificant. But you know Jesus' response. He says, suffer the little children to come unto me. For such is the kingdom of heaven. Unlike any other teacher, like a, unlike any other rabbi, Jesus saw the precious value of every human life. And especially humble, innocent children. And he used this child as an illustration to counter the pride that was emerging in the heart of his disciples. This ominous presence of sinful pride and said, you need to become like this child. Because of such is the kingdom of God. This kind of simple faith the kind of humility that children present. They can't defend themselves. They, you know, they don't own things. They, they realize you know, they don't have the value of adults. And yet Jesus says, this is, when you receive one of these insignificant little children, it's like you're receiving me. And if you're receiving me, guess what? You're receiving my Father. And so this is an important lesson. I know you all don't deal with pride. You know, it's like that old country song. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. But you know, but pride is sneaky. And it invades and it interferes with our... It was interfering with the relationship of Jesus' disciples to one another. And listen, this problem didn't go away this day. It just surfaced that day. We know in Luke's Gospel all the way at the end in chapter 22... Verse 24, when Jesus was partaking of the last Passover with His disciples, we're told by Luke, what were they doing? As they're sitting there at the table, they're arguing about who's the greatest. That's why I say our Savior is so patient. He teaches us a great lesson about the danger of pride. How it interferes with our relationship with other believers. And then how it also has tendency to interfere with our relationship with God. And in finishing, I want you to see the Lord teaches how pride promotes divisiveness and exclusivity, but humility promotes unity. Back to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. <clears throat> now, just having heard that, John, the disciple of love, I think maybe I'm speculating, Maybe he's just heard Jesus rebuke them for their pride. And he's feeling, well, we need to confess. And so he comes to Jesus, probably on behalf of the disciples. Look at verse 49. Then John, 
Mind you, this is John that just had the two mountaintop experiences. Then John answered and said, uh, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Don't, don't lose sight of that. And we, and we, your trusty deputies, <laughs> and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. Not because he didn't follow Jesus, but he's not one of us. So, so look, I just want to check with you. I hope it was all right. We kind of took it upon ourselves. We saw this renegade out there <coughs> who was casting out demons, not like the, the heretical sons of Sceva that we learn about in the book of Acts who were trying to cast out demons in, in the name of the Jesus that Paul preaches. Folks, that's pretty removed. And we know that wasn't a pretty scene for those Jewish boys because the demon tore down on them, beat the tar out of them, stripped them naked, and threw them out into the street. Don't try to be out there exercising demons unless Jesus leads you to do that in His name. So, so we see that Jesus, John is kind of bringing this to Jesus. So we forbade Him because He doesn't follow with us. Jesus said in verse 50, do, do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is for us. Now, the point I want you to see here is when we allow pride to invade our minds and our, our hearts and our attitudes, we can become pretty narrow-minded. And Jesus was confronting this narrow-minded pride that generates this kind of divide. They were excluding someone from God's kingdom work because he didn't meet all the criteria. He wasn't one of them. And Jesus said, time out. Wait a minute. He's on our side. If he's out there doing this in the name, in my name, and he is on our side. And so I think it's, yeah, Mark, in his gospel, chapter 9, verse 38, he expands on that a little bit. says, <clears throat> John answered and said to him, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he did not follow us. But Jesus says, do not forbid him, for no one can, uh, who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he, who has, for he who is not against us is on our side. So Jesus pointed out to him, first of all, he's effective. He's casting out demons in my name. As that, that tells you he's doing it the right way. And Jesus says, he's on our side. He's one of us. True humility, ladies and gentlemen, encountering this kind of sinful pride, true humility enables us and empowers us to embrace other believers, listen carefully, who are outside of our familiar circle. They may worship a little differently than we do, they may practice a little differently than I do, but they are doing it solely to the glory of God. Who am I to judge? As long as what they are doing is doctrinally solid and for the glory of God. You see, pride causes us to draw very narrow circles that we would exclude. And the, and the solution, the antidote to this kind of sinful pride is Humility. Being humble. I think about it in 1 Peter 5, 6, when Peter says, Therefore, 
humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He might exalt you in due time. We don't have to exalt ourselves, folks. We need to be humble as our Savior was humble. So humble He went to a cross without offering protests or resistance or trying to defend Himself. He humbled Himself as a lamb going to slaughter. He modeled that humility that ought to be characteristic of us. And so I think it's wonderful that you and I see as we look at this, we see how our Savior, our Lord, though He is there at the right hand of God the Father, interceding on our behalf constantly, He is with us by His Holy Spirit. Every day in our moments of faith failure, in our moments of pride, the Lord is here. He's, he's in the journey with us. Did He not say in Matthew 28, 20, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. So in those moments of struggle as a Christian, don't let the devil beat you up. Don't throw in the towel. Don't, don't think that you need to run and hide like Adam and Eve. Just realize that you have a Savior who's walking with you, who is carrying you, and who is holding on to you because you are valuable in His sight. And He loves us. And He wants to see us succeed. And He's here to help us continually every day. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that Your Word gives us encouragement as we look into Your Holy Word and we see these very dramatic and vivid episodes in the life and ministry of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We are reminded what a loving God You are. What a faithful Savior You are. Lord, You are our friend. You are on our side. Lord, You love us too much to ignore the times when our faith is weak. You, you, you assist us by Your Holy Spirit through Your Word to give us counsel that we might know how to respond to the trials we face. And, and even when we have gone through a time where our faith was weak or we failed in our faith, Lord, that's a time to grow to be stronger, to learn, to be more mature, that we can bring glory to You the next go-round. Lord, we thank You that You have modeled it. You have not only taught us about humility, but Lord, You modeled it perfectly. And that's who we are called to be, humble, faithful servants of God. Lord, we thank You that You give us the reassurance in Your Word that not only have You called us not only, Lord, have You forgiven us and washed us by Your precious blood and, made, and adopted us into the family of God, but Lord, there in Luke and John's Gospel, chapter 10, You remind us that there, those that the Father has given to You and placed in Your hand, no one in no wise will be able to snatch them out of Your hand. Lord, we are safe. Even through our faith failures, we are secure. Even when wicked Pride raises its ugly head in our lives. We are still yours. And you have promised us, Lord, that no one can snatch us out of your hand. You, oh Lord, our Savior, you will hold us and hold us fast. And we ask that you continue to walk with us patiently. Help us, Lord, to see you in our lives and to turn to you and trust in you 
and grow our faith that we might bring glory to you. And we thank you for your faithfulness and your love and your patience with these precious ones that you call your children. And we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.